Uh, David, as we have said over and over again through this series, is one of the most well-documented people in the entirety of the ancient world, and certainly one of the most, most important people in the Old Testament. We read that Jesus is called the son of David, and that David himself is a man after God's own heart. And so there's a sense in which we can't fully understand who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do unless we understand this magnificent king, King David. We'll see that particularly this morning as we look at David's fall and then his rise again. We're going to read, starting in 2 Samuel 11, I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we're going to jump down a little bit, so just track with me as we read. This is God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Jump down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, And then draw back from him that he may may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Skip ahead to chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and gather them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your word. These are hard words. This is a difficult text. For if we're honest, Lord God, we see ourselves in this story so very clearly. I pray, Lord God, that you'd be near to us by your Spirit now as we wrestle with this text. I pray, Lord God, that we would be subdued by your Spirit, that we would see our sin more clearly, but that we would see the gospel even more clearly than that. Hear our prayer, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked at one of the most heartwarming stories in the whole Bible, the story of David and Mephibosheth. In that story, King David brought the disabled grandson of his greatest enemy into the the palace and said, you will always have a place at my table. It was a story about love, it was a story about mercy, it was a story about hope, it was a story about adoption and the life-transforming power of the gospel. It's It's a story that showed us the heart of Jesus, the son of David, who invites us to dine at his table, adopting us into the family of God. That's what the Lord's Supper is about, which we'll celebrate today. That's what the church is about. You have a place in God's house, at God's table, with God's family because of Jesus. Now, in the aftermath of that heartwarming story, we come to one of the most heartbreaking stories in the Bible, the story of David and Bathsheba. In this story, David, a man after God's own heart, brings a beautiful woman to the palace. He sleeps with her, he impregnates her, and then he murders her husband in order to cover up his crime. Along the way, he lies to his friends, he lies to the nation, he lies to himself, trying to convince himself that God's rules do not apply to him. 
that he is above it all, that God is blind to injustice, to treachery, to betrayal, that God is indifferent towards the private life of the king. The contrast between the David of 2 Samuel 9 and the David of 2 Samuel 11 couldn't be more striking. How could this be the same man? How could one person be capable of so much kindness and so much cruelty? What happened to him? What happened to his heart? What happened to his soul? Can it happen to us? Can it happen to you? Can it happen to me? Is there hope for sinners like David? Is there hope for sinners like us? How do we resist temptation? How do we resist the power of sin? How do we fight for purity? How do we fight for holiness? How do we fight for integrity? How do we rest in the arms of Jesus who says, I know exactly who you are and I know exactly what you've done and yet I love you. Not because of you. I love you because of me. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at this amazing story in five scenes. In scene one, we have the calamity as David sleeps with Bathsheba. In scene two, we have the cover-up as David murders his friend Uriah in order to cover up his sin. In scene three, we have the confrontation as Nathan boldly, tactfully, and memorably confronts David with the ugly reality of what he's done. In scene four, we have the confession as David confesses his sins openly and honestly to the Lord. And finally, in scene five, we have the commutation as the Lord pardons David, giving him grace that he does not deserve, grace that is greater than his sin. Sin is ugly. Grace is beautiful. How do we resist the power of sin? How do we embrace grace? How do we embrace Jesus, the son of David, our great and majestic king? Let's take a closer look. We begin with scene one, the calamity. The story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah is an ugly story. It's an R-rated story. There's absolutely no sugarcoating any of what David did here. If you see people in the narthex after the service and they look a little bit shell-shocked, give them a hug because they probably taught children's church today. (laughs) This is not an easy story to explain to nine-year-olds. It's absolutely shocking what we see here. Well, what happened? First, we're told that David abdicated his duty. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites, they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. David sent his army out to do battle against the Ammonites, but he stayed home. He asked them to do something for him that he was unwilling to do for them. He abandoned his troops, He abandoned the mission of God. There's there's an old saying that says, 
that idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that certainly is on display in this story. If you are not on mission, if you are not pursuing God, if you're not worshiping and praying and reading your Bible, if you're not reaching out to other people in fellowship, in worship, in mercy, in evangelism, you're headed towards a great and terrible fall. You're setting yourself up for something that you're never expecting to happen, but will happen to you. You don't have to go looking for sin if you're not on mission. Sin will find you. It's not a matter of if you'll crash and burn. It's a matter of when you'll crash and burn. It's going to happen. When it comes to the life of faith, we have to live lives on purpose. We have to be intentional. We have to actively pursue a relationship with God. If we don't, coasting becomes drifting. And drifting becomes crashing. And crashing becomes burning. It happened to David. And it absolutely can and will happen to you. Second, we're told that David committed adultery at home in his house with nothing to do. He took a walk on the rooftop of the palace. The palace in those days was higher than any other of the buildings in the city so that the, the king could shepherd over his people. But instead of shepherding over his people, David took a walk on the roof. He saw a young woman bathing, a very attractive woman. Again, very common in those days. People would bathe on the roof, rooftops of their houses. And he asked his servant, who is this woman? What is her name? And here's what they said. Verse 3. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now notice what they didn't say. They didn't simply say, oh, that's Bathsheba, a beautiful woman who lives next door. Though that is certainly the case. They said, this is Bathsheba, Eliam's daughter and Uriah's wife. Now, why is that important? It's important because Eliam and Uriah were two of David's best friends. They were part of an elite military unit that became known as David's mighty men. They fought with David and they bled with David and they were willing to die for David. And so the moment that David heard those two names, he should have come to his senses. The moment he heard the names Eliam and Uriah, he should have said, I can't do this. I cannot sleep with my friend's daughter. I cannot sleep with my friend's wife. By mentioning these names, God was giving David a way out. God always gives us a way out. Before we sin, God always provides a way of escape. We can always pull the chute before we hit the ground. We can always tap the brakes before we crash the car. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. That's why this is so tragic. God was providing a way of escape. 
He was holding up a giant red stop sign, and David blew right through. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is an absolute calamity. David abdicated his duty. He committed adultery. He betrayed two of his closest friends. And now Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. Now normally, this is the part of the show where Dr. Phil comes out and yells at you and tells you what a degenerate you are. But oh no, David is just getting started. Scene two, the cover-up. Now, it's a long story, so I won't read the whole thing again, but here's basically what happened. David called his friend Uriah home from the battlefield, and he tried to convince him to sleep with his wife Bathsheba, so that nine months later, Uriah would think that he was the father of David's baby. It didn't work. Uriah, being an honorable man, refused to go home and sleep with his wife. He said, essentially, how can I go home and sleep with my wife when my men are out there fighting in the battle? They're sleeping in tents. They're laying on the ground. I'm not about to go home and be with my wife. Now, now note the irony here that Uriah refused to do the very thing that David did. He refused to stay home from the battle. He refused to lie with his wife. So David came up with a new plan. Verse 15, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. This time it worked. Uriah died. David married his grieving widow Bathsheba had David's baby, and then David went about his business as if nothing ever happened. It's horrible. It's shameful. It's absolutely despicable. But it's helpful because David's horrible sin teaches us something about the nature of sin. The first thing we see about sin from this horrible event is that sin is powerful, Remember who David was. He was not only the king of Israel, he was a man after God's own heart. He was the man who defeated the great giant Goliath. He was loyal to his best friend Jonathan. He was kind to his son Mephibosheth. God made him king and gave him an everlasting kingdom. This man is a giant of the faith. If sin can bring him down, then sin can bring anyone down. It can bring you down, it can bring me down, anyone. That is a sobering reality, but it's true. And the moment that we forget it, the moment we say, I could never commit adultery. I have a happy marriage. I, I could never lie to my friends. I'm a very truthful person. The moment we say, I could never certainly commit murder, that is the moment that sin is crouching, ready to pounce, ready to devour you. Sin is powerful. It's powerfully destructive. That's why we need to take it seriously. We need to battle against sin. Armed with the, the full armor of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sin is powerful. 
But not only is sin powerful, sin is progressive. Look at what happened to David. It all started with a glance. He glanced at a beautiful woman. His glance became a gaze. His gaze became an invitation. The invitation became the act of adultery, which became deceit, which became murder, which became utter and total disaster. Most people don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to commit adultery today. Most people do not wake up and say, hey, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going I'm to commit murder. I'm going to murder my best friend. It doesn't work like that. It's a downward spiral. It's a slow progression. Sin starts out looking a lot like an acorn. A little acorn of lust. A little acorn of greed. A little acorn of selfishness. But eventually, the acorn grows into a tree. And if left unchecked, the tree becomes a forest. And the next thing you know, you're standing in the middle of a jungle, looking around, wondering, what happened? That's why we need to be militant about fighting and killing sin. Some of the old theologians used to call this mortification. An old theologian named John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. In that book, he wrote, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He was echoing the words of Jesus who said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go into heaven with one eye and one hand than with two eyes and two hands into hell and the judgment of God. And so the question is, are you killing sin? Or is sin killing you? Don't mess around with this. Don't toy around with sin. The acorn becomes a tree. The tree becomes a forest. Sin is progressive. The story also shows us that sin is painful. Sin has very painful consequences. David's sin had painful consequences for Uriah. First he lost his wife, and then he lost his life in battle. David's sin had profound consequences on Bathsheba. First she lost her, her husband, then she lost her baby. David's sin had profound consequences for David. In chapter 12, Nathan tells David, essentially, everything that you did to Bathsheba and Uriah in private is going to happen to you in public. You're about to reap what you sowed. All of the violence, all of the lust, all the adultery, all the murder, that's going to happen to you and your house from now until the day you die. There's a connection. Now, sometimes in life we rationalize sin. We say, well, you know, you can do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Have you ever heard this? You can do whatever it is that you want to do as long as there are no externalities, as long as your sin doesn't affect other people. That is a lie. That is a myth. Our sin always affects other people. There is no such thing as sin without externalities. That's true in the world in general. It is especially true in the church. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. We're united as one body by the bonds of the Holy Spirit. And so, when one part of the body is corrupted by sin, that 
cancer, that gangrene, that contagion, contagion spreads to all the rest of the body, for we are one. That takes us to scene three, the confrontation. Nathan, the prophet of God, essentially the Billy Graham of Israel at this time, had the courage to confront the king. But what's interesting here is the way he did it. He confronted the king in a very tactful way. He tells a story about a rich man who had everything, who took advantage of a poor man who had nothing. The rich man had flocks and herds, and when a guest came, instead of taking one of his own sheep, one of his own lambs, he went to a man who had one sheep, one lamb. He took the lamb, he slaughtered it, and he gave it to his guest. It was outrageous. And when David heard it, he was rightly incensed. He was rightly angry. He reacted the way any sensible, sensitive person would react to a story like this. Chapter 12, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. David was the man who took another man's wife. David was the man who was not satisfied with all the great gifts that God had given him. I want to ask a question about this little scene. I think it's helpful by way of application. Do you have someone in your life who loves you enough to tell you the truth? Do you have a Nathan in your life? Someone who can be absolutely honest with you, absolutely square with you. If the answer is no, then let me encourage you. You need to go find a Nathan. You need to have someone in your life who you can let in, who is willing to call you out when you sin, someone who is willing to hold you accountable. If the answer is yes, you have someone like that, then let me encourage you to listen to your Nathan. When your Nathan comes to you and says, I see problems in your life, I see sin, don't get angry, don't get defensive, remind yourself that this person has been put in your life for this very purpose to draw you back to Christ and the ways of the gospel. The second question is, do you love other people enough to tell them the truth? Are you willing to be a Nathan for some other person? If the answer is no, if the answer is I'm not willing to be a Nathan, if your answer is I'm actually a lot more like Joab, in the first part of the story, Joab just goes along with whatever David says. Hey, absolutely, uh, kill Uriah, no problem, sir, got it. He doesn't confront him, he doesn't stop him, he doesn't put the brakes on at all, he's a complete enabler. If that's who you are, you have to ask yourself, do I really love this person? Because if you are not willing to risk friendship in order to tell someone the truth, let me contend with you that you perhaps do not really have a friend. You have someone that you are using to make you feel better about yourself, and you're afraid of, of having that person there to be with you and to laugh and to see movies or whatever it is you do together, and so you're, you're unwilling to challenge them. Real friends call each other out on the carpet sometimes. 
Real friends say, hey, you're about to do something that's going to be an absolute and utter disaster. Now, if the answer is yes, I am willing to be a Nathan, I am willing to speak hard truths, and I'll start with you, Pastor Joel. I don't like your face. I have a couple of those. Notice the way that Nathan confronted David. Notice his gentleness. Notice his tact. Notice how he told him the truth. He held a mirror up to David so that David would see his sin because the goal wasn't condemnation. The goal was repentance. It's much easier to just take the mirror and rather than holding it up, just kind of bash it over the guy's head. It's more, it's more existentially satisfying to just rail at someone and condemn someone. But if... Nathan had gone in to see David, guns blazing. I'm the prophet of God, and I'm here to call you out for all the sins that you've done. The defenses would have come up, the walls would have come up, the shields would have come up, and David probably would not have repented. He would have not listened to anything that Nathan had to say. In other words, Nathan spoke the truth in love. In our day, A lot of people are willing to speak the truth without love. And that's basically Twitter, is it not? It's just people, hey, I'm going to tell you the truth, my friend, and I'm going to lay into you. And we also have a lot of people who are willing to, to love without truth. To simply affirm us and pass on the back and never challenge us and never show us a better way. There is no truth without love. And there is no love without truth. We need both. And Nathan provided both. That's scene three, the confrontation. Here's scene four, the confession. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Very short, very sweet. But in these few short words, David shows us what true repentance looks like. He shows us what true confession looks like. First, notice how David took personal responsibility. He didn't say, I sinned against the Lord, but but Bathsheba probably should have paid a little bit more attention to modesty. You know, she probably should have not been on, on that roof taking a bath. So, you know, it's partially my fault, but it's also kind of partially her fault, too. He didn't say, I've sinned against the Lord, but hey, at least I was willing to marry her. You know, at least I was willing to marry her when she got pregnant. I mean, listen, he could have said that. He could have said, well, I sinned against the Lord, but listen, if Uriah would have obeyed my direct orders and gone to be with his wife, then he'd still be alive today. He didn't blame his parents. He didn't blame his society. He didn't blame his circumstances. He didn't blame the victim. He didn't blame God. None of that. Full responsibility. If you are going to repent, you must take full responsibility for your actions. Second, notice how he correctly identified the offended party. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. All sin is ultimately sin against the Lord. Now, that's not to to diminish the horizontal aspects of our sin. Not at all. When we sin, we hurt other people. David hurt a lot of other people. 
but it is to say that we so often focus exclusively on the horizontal aspect of our sin to the extent that we completely minimize or ignore the vertical dimension of our sin. And when we do that, when we focus only on the horizontal level of our sin, we end up treating the symptoms and we never treat the disease. We never get to the heart. We take out outward external measures. We say, all right, I'm going to get a, a you know, covenant eyes or accountability software for my computer. I'm going to put a swear jar on top of the refrigerator. And I'm going to do all these external things in order to restrain my sin. But when we recognize that our sin is ultimately all sin against the Lord, then we have to ask some heart questions. Then we need to say, why did I sin? Why did I do this? Why was I not finding my identity in Christ? Why was I not finding my satisfaction in the Lord? What led me away from the Lord? Why in that moment did I find this sin more satisfying than this table? The body and the blood of Christ. Why? David asked those, those hard questions. His ultimate goal wasn't to escape the consequences of his sins. His ultimate goal was a restored relationship with God. That leads us to scene five, last scene, the commutation. Verse 13, And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now again, are there consequences to David's sin? Yes, there are always consequences when we sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God is merciful. The good news of the gospel is that God is gracious. The good news of the gospel is that God, in Christ, does not give us what our sins deserve. I can't explain it any better than Dale Ralph Davis. He wrote this. In this scene, we expect retribution, retribution, punishment, judgment on David, and that is there. But we also have the sense that we have traveled beyond judgment in 2 Samuel 12 into the land of grace. God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. That's grace. God's something for nothing when we don't deserve anything. Eugene Peterson, commenting on these passages, points out that this scene echoes an even more significant, famous courtroom scene. A scene in which Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. In this scene, Nathan points his finger at a guilty king and he says, You are the man. In that scene, Pilate points his finger at an innocent king and says, Behold the man. In Pilate's courtroom, the innocent king is given a verdict of death. In Nathan's courtroom, the guilty king is given a verdict of life. How can that be? Isn't this unjust? The answer is grace. Jesus, the innocent king, died so that David, the guilty king, could live. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died on the cross so that we might live. Because of the cross, our sins are forgiven. Because of the resurrection, we know that God is making all things new, all people new. 
all outcomes new. Sin is ugly. There's nothing more ugly than sin. God's grace is beautiful. There's no one more beautiful than Jesus. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we come to you acknowledging the depth of our sin and misery. Lord, apart from you, we have nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But I pray, Lord God, that that realization, that honesty, would not drive us to despair, but that it would drive us to the cross, where we see love that is so amazing, so divine, that it demands my heart, my soul, my life, my all, my everything. I pray, Lord God, that you would be with us all, especially those who come this morning feeling weighted down and burdened by a weight of sin that they cannot bear. Lord, would you pronounce life to them through Jesus. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.